Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, President Biden last Friday ordered a bipartisan commission to study expanding the U.S. Supreme Court, among other changes. Biden first proposed the commission on the 2020 campaign trail as Democrats decried Senate Republican efforts to confirm a justice days before a presidential election after preventing former President Obama from filling a seat for nearly a year. We'll look at the potential impact of a Supreme Court overhaul and get reaction to the court's most recent decision to strike down a California law limiting indoor Bible study during the pandemic. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. President Joe Biden on Friday issued an executive order establishing a 36-member bipartisan commission to study the possibility of Supreme Court reform, including expanding the number of justices. Biden proposed the commission on the campaign trail as the court's rightward shift and how it was achieved became a rallying cry for Democrats. We'll talk about what the commission will do But first, let's look at the court's latest decision to strike down a California law setting pandemic-related limits on the number of people who could attend indoor Bible study. Joining us is Rory Little, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law and former attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice. Professor Little, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Mina. It's great to be with you. Also, Kate Shaw is with us, a professor at the Cardozo School of Law and co-host of the podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Professor Shaw, appreciate having you on as well. Thanks for having me, Mina. So, uh, Professor Little, I'll start with you. Late Friday, the court issued its opinion in Tandon v. Newsom. This was a challenge to a California law setting limits on the number of people that could attend indoor Bible study or home worship at one time. The court struck down the law 5-4. And I should also note that the court struck down another California pandemic-related law in February that restricted indoor services at churches. So, Roy Little, can you talk about the court's reasoning in these cases and their legal significance? 
Well, uh, those are two very different questions, I, I think, in the sense that uh, this does not affect a lot of activity in California, and these uh, conditions are going to change in a few days anyway. Um, but the legal significance of the court's action, I think, is huge. Uh, first, it demonstrates the significance of uh, stealing the Garland seat, as I call it, uh, and also jamming in the Amy Coney Barrett seat at the end of uh, the Trump presidency. Um, and here they, they basically compared in-home Bible study to things like hair salons, personal care services, movie theaters, uh, indoor restaurants, and said that uh, really there's no difference between that and home Bible study. And so the restriction on home Bible study to three families uh, was unconstitutional. Uh, they gave precedental effect to just the prior orders of the court. So in other words, these cases were decided without full briefing, without oral argument, and without the normal consideration we give to constitutional issues. Um, and that, I think, is by itself very significant. The idea that the shadow docket, the one that is not argued and fully briefed, is now uh, precedentally binding. But I should note that uh, Justice Kagan in her dissent said that California limits religious gatherings in homes to three households, just as it limits secular gatherings at homes to three households as well. And that, as you were saying, that uh, the justices, the conservative justices, were not comparing the same kinds of activities or apples to apples. But you say something interesting there, Professor Little, about the significance of this, the fact that this was decided um, on an emergency application, but also just the broader significance of this in terms of for lawmakers and governors as well, in terms of being able to implement public health rules does seem like a big thing to do. Well, I do think it's a big thing in the sense that uh, the court, and, and this is really not surprising, it's just very disturbing to me, the court has elevated any kind of religion claim to a very high level here. Um, and the idea that you can't write generally applicable rules, which may impact somebody's religious interest, um, and that they're going to be reviewed with this kind of scrutiny on an emergency basis on midnight on a Friday night, uh, is very disturbing to me. Professor Shaw, can you talk about Justice Amy Coney Barrett's imprint on this case in particular um, and what she does do in terms of religious rights? But but she also brings up or signifies in many ways for many Democrats problems with the high court's legitimacy. You know, I think that these two cases, the two California COVID cases that the court has disposed of on the shadow docket, are, I think are stark illustrations of the impact that Barrett has had on the court already. Um, so just last May, so May of 2020, the Supreme Court 5-4 in the South Bay Pentecostal case uh, rejected a challenge, right, to the state's then existent COVID restrictions. Yes. Um, and the Chief Justice wrote an opinion saying that federal courts owe significant deference to politically accountable officials, particularly when we're talking about matters of public health. So the court was 5-4 then, but of course that was a 5-4 court with Ruth Bader Ginsburg on it. So Justice Ginsburg, of course, died in September. Uh, Justice Barrett was confirmed to replace her in October. And within about a month, the Supreme Court had really changed course in terms of how much deference it was willing to give to public officials when it came to COVID-related restrictions, um, and particularly when those 
COVID restrictions kind of clashed with religious liberty claims. Uh, so out of New York, where I am, the Supreme Court in November struck down um, limits on the size of religious gatherings um, in a case brought by a number of Brooklyn uh, and New York City religious institutions. Um, and that too is a 5-4 sort of very quick course change about a month after Barrett's confirmation. And I think here too, you see what this new 5-4 majority um, is going to do in cases where you know these secular objectives and here public health objectives come into conflict with religious liberty claims. And so you had a 5-4 court in which Chief Justice Roberts joined the liberals, although he didn't write separately, he didn't join the Kagan opinion. I mean, you have the, the very strong now five-member conservative majority, you know, basically saying that it's going to be very difficult to justify even neutral and generally applicable restrictions if they don't essentially treat religion more favorably than comparable secular activities. And that I think as Rory was saying, is a very significant change in First Amendment doctrine. And it's one that was made without the benefit of full briefing and argument that the court typically gives to these important constitutional questions. Hmm. So yes, what a difference a justice makes, as you mentioned, the May decision. And then of course, there's this additional piece of this, Professor Shaw, of Justice Amy Coney Barrett being confirmed to replace Ginsburg just eight days before the presidential election. When it, you know, when we think about uh, the confirmation process that was applied to Merrick Garland, it was completely different. What role do you think this also plays right now in these questions around the politicization of the court and the court's new behaviors? Yeah, you know, I think that standing alone, a confirmation on the eve of a presidential election, you know, might be under some circumstances justified. But I do think that if you sort of zoom out a little bit and recall that in 2016, a Republican-controlled Senate declined even to consider the nomination of the eminently qualified Merrick Garland to replace Justice Scalia, who had died unexpectedly in February of that year, on the justification that it was an election year, and thus it would be improper to hold hearings or even meetings with Justice Garland, you know, 10 months, basically, um, you know, with 10 months, rather, on President Obama's term remaining, um, it is very hard to justify the decision to essentially accelerate the process of replacing Justice Ginsburg right on the eve of an election. So she's confirmed right before actual election day. But of course, remember, this is this COVID election in which many millions of Americans had already cast their ballots in uh, starting in September, I think in August in some places, but certainly in September and October. So the election was very much underway. Um, but the tension between the position four years earlier that the position, that, that the seat had to be held open for an election to occur and for the people to decide who should fill it, uh, and the position taken four years later when the Ginsburg vacancy, you know, was potentially up for being filled, um, was, was really, really stark. And I do think um, you know, kind of kicked into higher gear debates that had already been underway about questions of politicization and the Supreme Court. I mean, even before you had these events, you know, you really have the Supreme Court for the first time in modern history, at least, in which all of the justices on the court kind of vote consistent with the policy preferences of the presidents who appointed them. That mm -hmm. hasn't historically been the case, but it is the case. So you already have this appearance of kind of the court as a quite political body. And then when you add into it, what for many people was a deeply disturbing sequence of events with refusing to fill a vacancy that was very much President Obama's to fill and then ramming through uh, a replacement for a vacancy that really, really should have been for the next president to fill. I think that those two things together uh, have raised the stakes, I think, in the kind of interest in 
you know, conversations about Supreme Court reform. You're reminding me, Kate Shaw, that you clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens, correct, who was a Nixon appointee, but probably didn't necessarily vote in line with what, well, I guess present day Republicans would, would do as well, even. Slight correction, then. Ford, actually. Yeah, 75, he was uh, oh, President Ford. Ford, but a Republican, but a Republican president. So Ford, the that's right. Holds. The point holds, though, and I think, you know, he is one of, I think, a number of case studies of precisely this dynamic, which is, you know, presidents make an appointment and then justices cast votes that are often inconsistent with the preferences of the justices who appoint them. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of a time-honored tradition of judicial independence and independence from appointing presidents. And we have had historically many, many presidents who have deeply disappointed the presidents who appointed them. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case with the current court. And, you know, if the justices just look like extensions of the kind of parties of the presidents who appoint them, then I think there are real questions raised about legitimacy. The court has hmm. always been understood to act outside of politics. And I think that's a little bit thrown into question right now. Rory Little, would you agree that the court is in a crisis of sorts in terms of perception, politicization, questions of legitimacy as a result? Well, so, Mina, I find myself somewhat schizophrenic uh, in response to your question. Um, you know, the court has always been a political body, really. Uh, and we can go back to the election of 1800 and the case of Marbury versus Madison, which is one of the more crazy episodes in, in constitutional history. Um, we can go back to the 1930s where uh, President Roosevelt proposed packing the court with new justices because he didn't like the way the old justices were deciding cases. And, and then we had a justice, frankly, switch his view and, and suddenly the, the Roosevelt initiatives were upheld. Um, Earl Warren, you know, when I was a kid, we used to see bumper stickers saying impeach Earl Warren, who was the chief justice, one of the great mm -hmm. chief justices. Um, so I don't want to say uh, that it is worse now than it ever has been. On the other hand, the changes in our society have been dramatic and the court no longer operates in the same society that it used to. And Donald Trump really brought this to stark uh, relief. Uh, because he challenged all the norms that we used to have, and Mitch McConnell aided him. Um, so I do think these reform proposals are very serious, not just possibly expanding the membership of the court, but maybe doing uh, it in a whole different way. The Constitution says almost nothing about how the Supreme Court should be formed. And so Congress does have the power to do certain things um, by legislation. And we're in a moment now where many of these changes address certain societal changes, not just court changes. So I do think it's very important. Well, we'll dig into what this commission is going to be looking at. That's looking at potential changes to the Supreme Court after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at the Supreme Court this hour and talking about proposals to reform the Supreme Court by expanding the number of sitting justices, setting term limits, etc., and a 36-member bipartisan commission that President Biden established Friday to study potential reforms. We're joined by Rory Little, professor at UC Hastings College of Law, former attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice, Kate Shaw, professor at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law and co-host of the podcast Strict Scrutiny, and you, our listeners, are with us. Do you think the Supreme Court should expand in size or that justices should have term limits? Do you have concerns about the politicization of the court? Give us a call with your questions, your comments. 866-733-6786 is the number. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So Kate Shaw, during the 2020 election, frustrated progressives in particular began raising or, or reviving arguments that the high court should should have institutional reform. In response, then candidate Biden promised to look at the issue. And so this commission he established Friday is sort of fulfilling that promise. First, can you describe what the commission is going to study with regard to expanding the size of the court? Sure. You know, so I think that the commission seems to have a pretty broad mandate. Um, so I think, as we said before the break, it's got 36 members, um, largely law professors, some political scientists, some historians, some you know practicing lawyers, um, some partisan balance. Obviously, it, I would say it's certainly left of center as a group, but there are quite a few conservatives or libertarians in the mix as well. Um, and, you know, it seems as though it is being charged with, broadly speaking, you know, providing an account of both commentary and debate about the role and operation of the Supreme Court, um, you know, assessing historical background of other periods in the nation's history when there has been some thought given to reforming the Supreme Court, and then an analysis of kind of what the principal arguments are, you know, for and against reform. There's not actually a directive in the executive order that the commission provide a bottom line recommendation as to one or all of these potential reform possibilities. Um, but I don't think there's anything in the executive order that precludes the commission from, you know, deciding uh, to reach a rec uh, you know some consensus recommendation or set of recommendations. Um, so again, the commission just the, the executive order just says kind of take a look at all the reform proposals. Um, but I think that that presumably includes you know the big ones actually expanding the size of the. Supreme Court, what's sometimes referred to as court packing, um, changing the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, right, maybe restricting its ability to decide certain kinds of cases, mm. uh, imposing term limits on the Supreme Court. Uh, 18 years is a, a term that is often discussed in academic circles, and I presume that they will give serious thought to. Then there are other kind of even more creative solutions that have been proposed Things like, um, you know, actually drawing members of the Supreme Court from the pool of sitting federal appeals court judges. So the court is actually just a rotating body as opposed to a standing body of nine. Um, you know, so, so these, I think, are the kinds of proposals. And then there are more kind of small board reforms. We were talking before the break about the shadow dock at the court deciding cases without full briefing and argument. Maybe there should be some reform to how the court approaches those kinds of requests. So that, I think, is kind of the menu of options before this commission. Yes. And some of the more extraordinary or the ones that have gotten the most attention has been this notion of, you know, basically going past its current size of, of nine seats. <sighs> Professor Little, could you just remind us when the court did reach that size of nine? Do you know historically how that was established? 
I'm so sorry. Uh, I forgot to unmute. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Zoom. Um, yes. the, the history goes back to 1869, where the statute was uh, amended, if you will, to establish the number at nine. It's been there ever since. It has been as few as five or six. It has been as many as 10 prior to that date. Um, and the number is not set in the Constitution. Um, so the effort to increase the number of justices, in a sense, right now is touted as payback for uh, Merrick Garland not being uh, given a hearing, let alone confirmed at the end of the Obama presidency. That allowed Justice Gorsuch to take the court, uh, to, to be on the court. And then, of course, uh, three and a half, four years later, we get the rush to confirm Justice Barrett, um, which uh, some people thought, well, if you're going to be consistent, at least you denied Garland a hearing, you should wait until the next election and the next president to select that seat. So in a sense, there are two seats at issue. And one of the proposals is, well, let's just add two more seats to make up with those seats. That would shift the majority, presumably, if the Senate confirmed Biden nominees to a more progressive group. Um, the the I have to say this 36-member commission uh, I think President Biden is on record as saying he's not really in favor of expanding the membership of the court because tampering with that institution, tampering with the numbers, would simply say to the next administration of another party, well, maybe you should then increase the number. And the next thing you know, we have 55 people on the Supreme Court. So, so that's very controversial. Uh, I do think with 36 members, it's a balanced, quote unquote, commission. You're going to see dissents. And you're going to see any legislation challenged uh, as a constitutional matter as well as a legal matter. So there's uh, by no means are we even close, I think, to changing things right uh, this minute. Yes. And you bring up one of the one of the major sort of arguments against, which is this sort of arms race type situation where the party in power will continually try to expand the court. Uh, and then also, interestingly, we had Justice Breyer speaking up about how any structural alterations you know, could be motivated, could be viewed as political influence, which is something that you would never want further eroding trust, he was saying, of the Supreme Court itself. But do you do you know what the most, I don't know, the arguments in favor of it that are outside this question of payback for Merrick Garland, what they have to say? Well, well I'm not sure that there are arguments in favor of it, other than uh, if you added also this idea of 18-year terms, uh, which would basically say that each president, every four-year term, a president would get two appointments and people would rotate off after 18 years. Now, how exactly that would be implemented right now with grandfathering in current justices and things like that, it's quite, uh, quite controversial. Whether the Constitution would permit that, the Constitution does not say the justices receive life tenure. It says they serve hmm. uh, on good behavior. People have interpreted that for 200 years or more as requiring life tenure. So would an 18 year term work? There are certain uh, workarounds. Uh, and, and Mina, I do think it's significant, right? That Justice Breyer, uh, almost everyone believes he will announce his retirement at the end of this term. Many people have called for him to announce his retirement earlier than that so that we could get going with the confirmation while the uh, Democrats still control 50 seats in the, in the Senate. 
Um, and, and here he is saying, I don't think you should change the membership of the court. I think he's, he has a very powerful uh, view there. I think it's persuasive on, on huh. many levels. Uh, but uh, his retirement and putting a new justice in his seat is not going to change the current balance of the court. It will, it will trade somebody presumably slightly more progressive than Justice Breyer uh, for somebody who is now currently viewed as part of the liberal camp. Well, let me go to caller Mark in Dublin. Mark, thanks for joining us. Hi. Uh, in the wake of the uh, Merrick Garland fiasco, I, I wrote a letter to uh, our two senators on the uh, Judiciary Committee uh, basically saying that uh, the 18-year term limit for justices made perfect sense. Again, it's nine times two. You wouldn't have to change the, uh, uh, the number of justices. And it would basically mean that each president would get two nominations during a four-year term. What you would have to do in addition to that is you would have to say you know, no filibustering of uh, judicial nominees is permitted and that the justices must get uh, or the nominees must get an up or down vote in a timely manner. This is to, uh, to obviate what happened uh, uh, with Mitch McConnell and Barack Obama. Well, Mark, thanks for sharing that comment. One of the things, Kate Shaw, that's come up is whether or not um, it requires a constitutional amendment to put term limits on Supreme Court justices. Do you know if that's decided one way or the other or clear one way or the other? You know, I, I don't think it's clear. I mean, so Rory mentioned some workarounds. So, you know, it, it is possible. It, it's true the Constitution doesn't say the words life tenure, but it's also true that as a matter of our kind of constitutional culture, it is beyond dispute that some version of life tenure is enjoyed by federal judges. Um, so I think that what you would have to do if you tried to implement a proposal like this without amending the Constitution is to say, justices get 18-year terms uh, as active justices on the Supreme Court, and then they become senior justices. So they retain you know, titles as justices, they retain their salaries, they can step in if there's a recusal, so they could still potentially hear cases on the Supreme Court, or they could sit by designation on the lower courts, but they would remain justices. They wouldn't you know, sort of phase out after 18 years. And to me, that actually seems like a solution that would satisfy this kind of constitutional norm of life tenure. Um, so I, I'm inclined to think that a statutory, you know, a, a statutory change that again implemented this term limit, but gave some version of life tenure to the justices appointed after the passage of the legislation would be constitutionally permissible. Um, but I do think there is a non-frivolous argument that you just have to change the constitution to implement term limits. And if that's the case, you know, it's so hard, you know, we last amended the constitution in 1992, you know, the equal rights amendment revival, you know, I think suggests there may be a renewed appetite for amending the constitution, but it's just, it's extraordinarily hard to do. And so, um, so I think that it's hard for me to see actually a constitutional amendment uh, to adopt term limits gaining the necessary support. But I, I, certainly it's not a question that has a settled answer. Well, even if uh, Congress decided to go ahead and do this because of all the things that were put in place to allow for a vote that would end up in support, Rory Little, do you see something like this being challenged and then going before the Supreme Court itself, before the very justices it's being discussed? Um, well, so that's a fascinating question. Uh, I do. Uh, I have no doubt there would be challenges uh, filed uh, and exactly how they would. I think they would have to handle it with the current nine members of the court uh, before the any legislation took effect. Um, 
and, and it would sort of be fascinating to see how they would grapple with that. I mean, Ju Chief Justice Roberts has now become one of the justices who may be sometimes voting not in lockstep with his appointing president, although uh, you could certainly debate even if that's true. You know, the caller Mark uh, talked about some other things. You, if you put this 18 year limit in, you're gonna have to maybe also put things in that say every president gets two appointments um, and they must be uh, voted on, given a hearing and voted on within a certain number of months. Um, and maybe a rule that says you can't confirm a new justice within three months of a presidential election, things like that. The details are incredibly difficult actually to work out. Uh, I do think there would be challenges and I don't know what the justices would do. Uh, there is a serious argument that um, you can't compel a justice to go senior. Uh, we don't compel federal judges to go senior, although they can when they want to. Um, so, I, I mean, I, Kate is, of course, right that, that there's a non-frivolous argument on the other side. Uh, there are other pieces of legislation we could do. We could sort of say it requires a supermajority to overrule a precedent might be one rule. Uh, it's not clear that Congress could do that, but if they did do it, it, it would be challenged. Uh, we could say that the shadow docket just can't be used to settle constitutional questions, that you have to give full briefing and argument. There's so many ideas that may be on the table. This commission has a lot of work to do before it mm -hmm. issues its report, and they have a six-month deadline for their report. And so do you think that these changes are much more feasible, even potentially likely. Uh, Kate was saying that this commission will not necessarily make recommendations, so it may not be precluded from doing that as well. But that's been something that some on the progressive side have basically said indicates that there is really little appetite for Supreme Court reform and um, th that it's relatively unlikely. Well, I, you know, I don't know how legislation is going to work. I don't think this commission is going to issue a single report. I mean, the chair will probably try very hard to do that. But I think you may see uh, concurring views that actually suggest more reforms. You will see dissenting views from people who say we shouldn't do anything. Uh, I mean, this commission is just going to be the beginning. Um, could Congress actually get together and enact legislation even if it were going to be challenged in court, could, could we actually get 50 votes for, for anything? Uh, I think we're way up in the air. Let me just say, we are waiting right now for a number of large decisions from the Supreme Court, presumably all decided by July 1st, um, that will give us a very clear signal as to how conservative this majority is. Um, there is some hope that uh, Justice Kavanaugh, for example, who seems to align himself with the Chief Justice may not go as far as some of the other justices. That is, we may get a signal that we don't need to totally overturn the apple cart in order to address future issues. Um, we'll get some signal on Roe versus Wade. Uh, what, what cases will they grant for the following term? So uh, the next three months is very significant in terms of shaping this debate. The, let me just put to you quickly um, one of the more the more cynical perspectives on that, which is that the conservative justices are basically going to bide their time and not be too dramatic initially to try to quiet some of these calls for reform, but that ultimately say when Republicans gain control at least one House of Congress that they will be more active. What do you think of that, Rory Little? 
Well, I honestly don't think the justices think that way. I really don't. Once you have life tenure and you're on the Supreme Court, I think they try to decide cases the way they think they should be decided. I don't think they strategize politically as much as senators do or members of Congress. Um, Having said that, I do think that um, there will be counsel coming from the chief justice to restrain their instincts. Um, And then, I'm sorry, but you never know what's going to happen. No one thought Justice Scalia would die in his sleep in uh, 2016. Um, So I don't think the five justices right now will want to bide their time because you just don't know what's going to happen. And if they lose one vote, then they they lose their opportunity for the agenda. Uh, But I don't think justices think nearly as politically as some of the um, members of Congress do. Well, Ben writes, what role do you think the Citizens United decision had in eroding public faith in the Supreme Court? In hindsight, that decision seems indefensible. Kate Shaw, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it's always striking to me sort of how kind of how much salience Citizens United has had in kind of the public imagination. It has had a real impact, um, you know, and it's it's this, you know, kind of it was this quirky little case just about, you know, a documentary film that was going to be released via video on demand and did end up sort of um, wreaking this, you know, very significant change in First Amendment doctrine that did um, not entirely on, on its own, but with a follow-on decision from the DC Circuit shortly thereafter, kind of create super PACs and really open the kind of money in uh, political campaigns floodgates. Um, and and I think that it has, you know, I, I, the public opinion on the Supreme Court is always a little bit hard to to read, um, but. My old boss, Justice Stevens, um, you know, predicted that Bush versus Gore in 2000 was going to have a real lasting impact on the public's perception of the court as an impartial guardian of the rule of law. And it did a little bit short term, but actually didn't seem to have as long term an impact as I think Justice Stevens predicted. Um, and Citizens United, interestingly, um, I think has had some real staying power. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting that the court has actually have, has a case before it this spring that also is kind of a quirky little campaign finance case. We actually have the donor disclosure case, not even campaign finance, but it's disclosure and it's related themes um, involving this California disclosure requirement, actually, um, of donor identity. Uh, and I think it's possible that the court will do more to deregulate kind of disclo- or mm. to disable government from regulating. Um, and uh, and that, I think, could have some compound effect on top of Citizens United. So I think it has had a real staying power and could have more to come. Well, let's talk more about some of those major cases coming before the court this term, right after the break with Kate Shaw and Rory Little. And also we'll get to your calls as well. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about proposals to, report, to reform the Supreme Court, and we're inviting you, our listeners, to join the conversation that we're having with Professor Rory Little, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law, and Kate Shaw, professor at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law, co-host of the podcast Strict Scrutiny. Tell us what are your questions and comments for our guests, thoughts on reforms to the Supreme Court, concerns you might have of the politicization of the court. 866-733-6786 is the number. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And let me go to Lori in Davis. Hi, Lori. Join us. Hi, thanks so much. Uh, yeah, I am quite concerned about the the increasing partisanship of the uh, Supreme Court and all the judicial branch, for that matter. And I wonder what your guests think about uh, Mayor uh, Buttigieg's idea of um, uh, having five conservative justices, five liberal justices, and five selected by those two first groups as a way of keeping it more permanently uh, nonpartisan. Um, thanks, Lori. This was a proposal, yes, that uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg supported that came from Professor Dan Epps and Ganesh Sitaraman. Roy Little, what are your thoughts on this process? Well, Secretary Buttigieg, right? He's now. Oh, Secretary. yes, sorry, Secretary Buttigieg. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to correct you. I just think that we still think of him as mayor. That, well, it was during his campaign that I think he he expressed right. that, didn't he? So, yeah, uh, that's yeah. probably why. You know, I'd be interested to hear what Kate Shaw thinks about the balanced bench idea. Um, to me, it's kind of a technocrat's solution to uh, partisanship, uh, which means, uh, which I mean to say, not to criticize it, it is complicated uh, and it is uh almost hard to imagine how exactly it would work. The idea is that you would uh, sort of take five justices, I, I don't even understand, there'd be 10 justices, five justices would sort of be from one party, five from the other. Those justices would then themselves choose five additional justices yes. uh, who would be nonpartisan, and then they would decide cases either with a bench of 15 or maybe in panels of nine, it gets uh, very uh, detailed in the weeds. Um, there's some constitutional question as to whether it would be constitutional for justices to appoint other justices. The appointment power is generally said to be reserved for the president. Um, it's an interesting idea. It would be nice if we could do a nonpartisan commission to decide the biggest cases we face. Um, but I, but I honestly think I, I don't see much chance that it would be enacted because it's too complicated. Yes. Well, Kate Shaw, we're a little laid out a lot of the questions around this. What are your thoughts on that proposal? I agree that the implementation would present a number of challenges, and I guess I worry just the premise that there would be five nonpartisan qualified prospective justices on whom five liberal appointees and five conservative appointees could agree, I just think is a little bit of a tall order in these, you know, really hyper polarized times. I mean, I think in some ways Merrick Garland was President Obama's attempt to offer a nonpartisan uh, nominee to the Supreme Court and, and to the Senate for their consideration, you know, given that Garland was older and and quite moderate. Um, and, you know, he wasn't even granted meetings, let alone a hearing uh, or a confirmation vote. And so I, I'm just not sure 
who the pool of moderates that would be acceptable to both parties would be in a, in a, in a quite polarized moment, even setting aside the implementation challenges that Rory identifies. Well, let me go to caller Colin in San Francisco next. Hi, Colin. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. So, um, you know, I, I think it's doubtful that the, any changes to the Supreme Court appointments would make it through uh, the Congress because of the filibuster. And perhaps the left should really be con- doing some self-examination as to why, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg could have been uh, retired and been, uh, Obama could have appointed a replacement, um, more people hadn't been, you know, calling her for her to do exactly that. I think maybe it was uh, the Bolt uh, Law School Dean uh, Chemerinsky uh, had made that suggestion, and um, he was criticized for that, you know, that it was, um, you know, somehow uh, inappropriate for him to have made those remarks. Um, Shouldn't uh, the left be looking at... um, whether Justice Breyer should be encouraged to retire now um, while President Biden can appoint his replacement? Mm. Um, or, you know, is, do, should we instead, you know, we be, um, you know, requesting a copy of the Stephen Breyer workout video? <laughs> well, Colin, thanks for the question. Let me go back to Rory Little on that because you were mentioning Breyer in the, in, I mean, what do you know about his plans? And should the left be raising, Uh, Raising his voice on this, as Colin is suggesting? Well, Colin uh, makes me sort of become nostalgic for the olden days uh, of prior to President Donald Trump. Uh, When when we all knew, quote unquote, that Hillary Clinton would be elected, uh, and we never thought the Senate would violate the norms of not giving a nominee a hearing, uh, let alone a vote, and we all thought the world would be fine and we didn't know there'd be a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that world is gone. Um, and so I think the point uh, about maybe Breyer should go soon, <clears throat> we're only talking a couple of months. I really believe firmly that he's going to announce his retirement uh, at the end of the term, which is traditionally around July 1st. Um, and I, I don't think he sees any dire need to go f- uh, you know, yes, somebody could drop dead of a heart attack and, and, and it could happen, but I don't think he's going to disrupt the normal course of the term uh, by by doing this early. Uh, I do not have any idea what his private thoughts may be on this topic, uh, but he he's a smart person. He used to be Senator Kennedy's um, political person on the Judiciary Committee when he was a staffing uh, and uh, he knows the count. He knows the Ginsburg example. Uh, he'll do the right thing. I have great confidence. Well, let me thank Colin for the question. And we mentioned just before the break cases coming before the court this term. And KHI, wondering what other cases you are looking at. Of course, there are some major ones related to voting rights, even the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, so, the, you know, the Affordable Care Act, um, the latest challenge to Obamacare um, in which a number of states have argued that when the Congress zeroed out the penalty attached to the individual mandate, um, that removed the constitutional basis on which the mandate was enacted, and that the entire Affordable Care Act should therefore be struck down as unconstitutional. Um, so I think that most court watchers think that that 
argument, which is a very aggressive argument, is unlikely to succeed. There's a chance it could. I mean, the Trump Justice Department supported the argument, and that, of course, you know, invalidating the entire Affordable Care Act would be a seismic decision by the Supreme Court. Again, I don't think anyone expects the court to come down that way, um, but that's certainly one that we are all watching. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another kind of, you know, religious liberty case that I think maybe we saw some signals about in the Friday night order that we started the show by talking about. Um, so this case involves uh, foster parents in Philadelphia or foster agencies that refuse to grant uh, licenses to same-sex couples that wish to serve as foster parents um, on religious liberty grounds. Uh, and so that there's a real question about whether the court is going to overrule a longstanding precedent that it may have in some ways quietly overruled on Friday night anyway. And so I think that the Friday night order um, sends a strong signal that these religious objections are likely to prevail in the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. But that is certainly uh, an important case. There is a case about the scope of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and there is this California donor disclosure case which again is fairly specific, um, but I think could send a signal. When the court decided Citizens United, the one thing it said the government could do to regulate money in politics was to require robust disclosure. Um, But there are a lot of conservative forces that think that compelled disclosure violates the First Amendment rights of individuals who wish to remain anonymous when they spend political money. Um, And so there could be language in this opinion that calls into question the kind of remaining regulatory mechanisms for kind of controlling money in politics. So those, I think, that's probably my list of top three or four cases the court will decide this spring. Rory Little, what are you really watching closely and most interested in the outcome? (laughs) I wish I had the command of the docket that I know uh, Kate Shaw has. Um, but but I w- so let me just say every uh, June, basically, we suddenly get our antenna up on cases that we really weren't paying that much attention to before that. And my guess is there are, uh, I could probably come up with five or six cases for you uh, given an hour of study, but I right now, I will say that the one that I'm most concerned about is this Fulton versus Philadelphia, this one uh, which pits uh, very different views of the constitutionality of uh, actions that implicate religious interests. Pits, it's, it's a dramatic uh, war, if you will. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote an opinion, we're now talking 20 to 25 years ago, um, called Smith. The Smith case says, when the government writes a generally applicable law that incidentally affects religious interests, it's not unconstitutional unless there's some specific hostility to the religious interest. The Smith case is now being challenged in this case, Fulton. And of course, Amy Coney Barrett uh, and Justice Gorsuch both have loyalty to Justice Scalia. And yet the effort is to overrule Smith and give religious interests a very high strict scrutiny higher than I think they've ever had in the past. The Fulton case will decide uh, initially whether the Smith case is really in danger of being overruled. If it were overruled, I think you would see a dramatic shift in our constitutional landscape because every single law that touches anybody's religious interests, not just mainstream religions, but obscure religions, would suddenly become a strict scrutiny constitutional issue that case uh, scares me, and I'm actually pretty convinced that Omi, Amy Coney Barrett is going to find a way to not overrule Smith, even if she uh, accommodates the religious interest in that case. 
Again, Rory Little is professing at UC Hastings College of the Law, former attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice. Kate Shaw is professor at the Cardozo School of Law and co-host of the podcast, Strict Scrutiny. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're getting a couple of sort of logistical questions related to term limits that I'd like to ask. This listener writes, can term limits be imposed retroactively? Can the justices already on bench be given a retirement date in the future and then new hires be set at 10 years, etc.? SCOTUS should be expanded, this listener also adds, uh, because it's too small and limited in thinking right now. And then this other listener writes, Brian, regarding giving an 18-year limit on justices, would a president be able to nominate more than two if other seats are needed? to be filled because of vacancies due to death or other circumstances. Do you have answers, Kate Shaw? Um, so on the first one, no, I don't think anyone thinks you could impose term limits on the current sitting justices. That would seem to flatly contradict the constitutional norm, even if not the constitutional language regarding life tenure. So all the proposals tend to be prospective. So they'll take effect, not even immediately necessarily, but in you know two, four, six, eight years, something like that. Um, and in some ways, the idea there is that everybody would evaluate the proposal kind of behind the veil of ignorance, not knowing who's going to be in command of the White House um, at this future date when the actual proposal um, uh, comes into being. So that, uh, on the first of those, that I think is um, is pretty clear. Um, you know, this, the, the sort of, the, 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 the general observation that the court should be expanded, that it is uh, too small. I do think there's an argument that, you know, setting aside the political considerations underlying the current drive for expansion, there is an argument that our court is actually too small, that as compared to other comparable democracies, there are larger Supreme Courts um, that also you could sort of draw from a broader pool of backgrounds and experience if you actually had more people. So in some ways, that's why I'm less worried about this arms race possibility. If the court does grow and kind of keeps growing, I'm not sure that's necessarily a problem. Mm. Um, maybe the court should, is too small to begin with. Well, sort of related. Joan writes, I've often wondered whether it would make more sense to have term limits of 10 to 20 years, but when I see how difficult it is to get a Supreme Court justice confirmed, depending on the makeup of Congress, I wonder if we should just keep things as is with life terms. Rory Little, it's interesting Joan is talking about the politicization of the process, though I've also seen arguments that opportunities for presidents to present nominees on on sort of a predictable basis because of terms could make the confirmation process less fraught. Well, yes. I mean, the confirmation process is probably less fraught now because I I do think the Senate, uh, well, I think they're likely to get rid of the filibuster for confirmation of Supreme Court justices so that 50 votes is sufficient. Um, and uh, that will make it less fraught in the sense that the president's party or the party in control of the Senate will be able to confirm anybody that they want. Of course, it will matter whether the president and the Senate are controlled by different parties. Um, I think there are so many different details that it makes it very hard for me to imagine this working. And I I guess maybe we should disagree once in a while, uh, Kate, Shaw, and I. I think that the the, the court, I think nine justices is just right. I think it's the Goldilocks number. And and the reason I say that is I am already tired of decisions that are five to four. Hmm. And then within the five and the four, you get three different justices writing three different opinions. And you cannot tell even what the majority rule is on occasion. <clears throat> if you have 15 justices, you're gonna get six opinions per, per issue. Uh, if you have 21 justices, it'll get worse. I think 
there is an imperfection in the human process of deciding big cases. That's going to be true no matter what the number. I would leave it at nine. Um, possibly this idea of expanding it just to accommodate the two seats that, in my view, have been sort of stolen is a possibility. But then you get the arms race. And Mina, let me just say one more thing. There's a big case that's pending right now that I forgot about that your listeners might be interested in, which challenges the amateur status of the NCAA for college sports. This has nothing to do with partisanship, it seems to me. It has to do with antitrust law. But that case, if it comes out against the NCAA, could change college sports in a way that all of us would really be unhappy with, because that's what we do on the weekends. So that's a big case. Well, I, we just have a minute or so left, but I did want to get this last question in from this listener. Maybe we don't want to expand the size of the Supreme Court, or at least where a little doesn't. But Kate Shaw, what do you think about expanding the federal courts overall, circuit courts, etc.? This has been something that's been raised, though it looks like it might have some difficulty because of some opposition from some members of Congress. But uh, what do you think of that as an overall reform and balancing the courts? I am hugely pro, and I actually think that's something that this commission is likely to recommend. It should be uncontroversial. Many of our federal courts of appeals um, just have overloaded dockets and can't get through their caseloads. And that would be you know, a less politically fraught way for President Biden to really increase his imprint on the federal judiciary by creating a number of new judgeships. Um, you know, it could be controversial if those judgeships are in states that um, so that Republican the Republican members of the Senate feel and so there's a stacking of the lower courts uh, that is occurring. So you'd have to figure out where exactly the new seats would be created. But I think it's a, a terrific and important and uh, maybe most significantly achievable goal. So I hope the commission does seriously consider it. Yes, it would be 60 votes needed, right, to approve. Uh, so with the filibuster, so long as we have the filibuster, <laughs> I don't know how, you know, it seems to me that that could, it, it may not be long for this world. Obviously, if we're in a post filibuster environment, many of these proposals have a better chance. But yes, right now, presumably that would require the 60 uh, filibuster proof votes. And you quickly, Rory, a little on expanding the federal courts overall. You support that? Uh, yeah, I completely agree with Kate. Um, the, the number of lower federal court judges should simply represent what can a human being manage for a docket. And right now they're overwhelmed with the number of cases. And by the way, let's just say many state court judges just laugh when they hear me say that. Because in California, the state court judges have way more cases than the federal judges. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, uh, you know, just having enough judges to handle the load of litigation uh, is absolutely essential. So I totally agree on that point. Well, thank you, Rory Little of UC Hastings and Kate Shaw of the Cardozo School of Law for your insights, for giving us a sense of your thoughts on the proposals and giving us a sense of this term. And thank you to Susan Britton for producing today's segments. Really appreciate the calls and questions from our listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.